Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, listen up. Today's episode is brought to you by the good people at Squarespace. It's an all-in-one platform that makes it simple for you to create your own professional website, or online portfolio. Do you need a website? Do you want a better website? Squarespace offers beautiful designs that you can customize. There are over 20 templates to choose from and all kinds of style options available so you can make it look how you want it to look and you can make your site unique. Best of all, it's incredibly easy to use. It's fast, it's simple, it's clear, and it's fun. But hey, if for some reason you need some help, Squarespace has an amazing support team Available 24-7, there are over 70 Squarespace employees on the customer care team. And remember, their office has been nicknamed the Care Bear Lair. So you're going to be dealing with people who work in a room called the Care Bear Lair. That's a pretty good group of people, you guys. Packages start at just $8 a month, and you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. Also, every single website design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website so your content always looks great on every device every time. So what do you say? Start a trial right now with no credit card required and start building your website. Just go to squarespace.com and when you sign up at Squarespace, be sure to use the offer code OTHER8. You do that, you get 10% off and uh, it's a good way to show your support for this program. So come on, you guys, do this. Squarespace.com. Check it out. It's an amazing deal and an excellent way to build or improve your web presence. Squarespace, it's everything you need to create an exceptional website. Go and create one. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, stated what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is interacting with your brain. This is happening in multiple time zones. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy, reporting from Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be with you. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. Uh, my guest is Gregory Sherl. Gregory Sherl. He's got a new book out. It's called Monogamy Songs, and it is published 
by a great small press called Future Tense, and uh, we're going to get to that in just a moment. But first, uh, I would like to talk briefly about facial hair and uh, how it relates to male writers. I guess that would be kind of obvious, unless, you know, it's a very unique... I mean, some women have facial hair, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, The mustache, of course, but especially the beard. The beard and mustache combo. The full uh, facial hair presentation. And I was thinking about how it seems to be a recurring trope among male writers like through the ages. Like how many times have you seen this in author photos? The uh, plaintive, depressive, serious male writer uh, staring into the lens or better yet, gazing off into the distance. And he's got like a significant facial hair uh, situation happening. And so my question is, you know, what is that? Let's think about this. Let's meditate on uh, facial hair among writers. Uh, what does it signify? Or what does it try to signify? It, there seems to have... Well, I guess what I'm driving at is that it feels like a kind of billboard in a way. It's advertising something, isn't it? Is it wisdom? Is it world weariness? Is it messiah complex, laziness, anti-authoritarian tendencies, all of the above, none of the above? I wonder. I'm just posing a question, and I have no uh, definitive conclusions on this. But uh, what I can tell you is that as a young man, uh, a very young man, at the very beginning of my writing life in my uh, early 20s, when I was probably at the peak of my self-seriousness from a literary standpoint. Let's hope that's the case anyway. Uh, but, you know, it was at this age that I had, for the only time in my adult life, a beard and mustache. <laughs> and and I had it for a while, for like a good year. I wore this thing. And uh, what was I? I was like 21 <laughs> with my beard because, uh, you know, I had seen so much. Uh, I had done a semester abroad. I had confronted uh, great existential quagmires and uh, had decided that it was time to stop shaving. I don't know. You know, I'm not anti-beard either. If you have a beard, if you're listening to this and you have a beard and you find yourself suddenly uh, self-conscious or thinking about your beard... You know, I'm not criticizing the beard, uh, broadly speaking. It's totally fine. All that I'm saying is that author photos of men with beards uh, often make me laugh. Not always, but often. And my own included. Photos of myself uh, during my beard phase make me laugh. And I think that someone out there should start a Tumblr featuring uh, sad, bearded male authors. Assuming this hasn't been done already. I I sort of feel like it's probably been done. Sad male authors with facial hair. Can we do that? Because, let's be honest, 
it, it's it's the most common pose or one of them when it comes to like personal aesthetics among male riders like what's more traditional among that subset of the population than the beard the sign of suffering right the sign of hard won truth or something so and then you know and then to take it one step further uh, as i was considering beards among authors uh, i then began to uh, contemplate uh, female writers and if uh, wondering if there's any aesthetic equivalent like do female writers have a tendency to signify visually in any kind of consistent quantifiable way like for example is the decision to go naturally gray a thing among female writers and particularly female writers of a literary or poetic bent uh, I feel like some female writers do that like, like maybe as a way of signifying deeper wisdom and uh, a refusal to uh, hide their age and conform to uh, the dictates of uh, cultural and social norms or whatever not a bad impulse and then you know what else is there like heavy jewelry or, or like the head wrap I feel like some women wear headwear of some kind like like hats or scarves is that what you call those like I think I'm thinking of Zadie Smith with her head wraps which like have become a kind of trademark you know I can't think of her without thinking of a head wrap it's like her brain is so powerful uh, if she doesn't wrap it up it is going to explode not unlike uh, the late David Foster Wallace with his uh, bandanas so you know it's easy to mock author photos and it's fun and I think that authors generally speaking you know are not all they're not always photogenic though Zadie Smith is very photogenic uh, nor are authors uh, inclined to be photographed much of the time you know as a population I don't think authors tend to be hugely comfortable in front of the lens and then you couple that uh, with the fact that authors tend to be very cerebral we often overthink things and uh, including our author photos and so when that happens I think you wind up with these really lonesome looking bearded men uh, gazing out at you in black and white from various uh, book jackets there's something great uh, about really young men with beards <laughs> young male authors in their 20s with heavy beards uh, that's funny to me and I think that's that that's I think what should be the tumbler can somebody please do that I would do it but I don't have the time uh, nor do I have access to a trove of such photos hey everybody if you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature I have a book for you it's called truth is the arrow mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories it is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career a career that has featured at turns depression failure anxiety self-loathing despair self-doubt loss of faith delusions of grandeur and the occasional triumph 
It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Gregory Sherl. Great to have him here on the program. A very good guest. He's got a new book out called Monogamy Songs. Uh, it's hard to classify. Is it poetry? Is it memoir? Is it some kind of new hybrid? Uh, that book is available right now in paperback from Future Tense. Gregory also has his debut novel coming out in 2014 from Algonquin. Uh, it was written with the participation of Juliana Baggett, and it is called The Future for Curious People. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, otherwise, uh, I think it's time to get started. Here we go, you guys. This is my conversation with Gregory Sherl, and his new book, once again, is called Monogamy Songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have uh, me back in like oh five. Intention intentionally? Yeah, yeah. On what? Um uh Clonathan. Okay. And then this is this is funny because, you know, and then it's like people people are like, You should stop smoking and then it's like, you know, cigarettes actually save my life. Because I was actually being over dramatic about it, you know, taking a few, smoking a cigarette and I was in my grandparents' apartment. So, and I didn't want to be rude, you know, and leave smoke in there. <laughs> I didn't mind ODing in there, but um, I didn't want to leave smoke in there. So I would go outside and smoke a cigarette and take a couple more. And I ended up passing out before I got to like the the giant economy-sized bottle of town LPM. So, um, you know, and if you get too much towel in your system, that's it. But, uh, yeah, you know, waking up charcoal on your gown and all that. So Holy shit. Weird thing. So what, I mean, so yeah. you're just at your grandparents' house, you're smoking cigarettes, you're just like kind of casually taking pills, like you must have been in a, a low state. I mean, you were depressed, wanting to... Uh, very, you know, I've, I've dealt with uh, uh, really bad depression. Uh, well, you know, it all goes back to, um, it all happened probably around when I was like 19 or 20, which is, you know, if you're if a male, I, I, I don't know, I think it might be younger for females to reach, to start with symptoms. And this isn't the case for everyone, but it happens, you know, around that age. So it happens when people are generally in college and stuff, and it's a big transition time anyway. But um, so I was like, everything just got really weird. And I didn't understand why these things were happening. And I saw a school psychiatrist. And, you know, when, there's a, when you're at a school and there's almost 40,000 people and one psychiatrist, you know, they can only do so much. And you walk in there, and in 10 minutes, they, they tell you what's wrong with you. And, um, you know, what I, re what I remember, and I remember this, you know, like it's yesterday, it's been so long, is he's like, you have chronic depression. And he's like, your happiness level is here. And he stuck out his one hand, and then he went like six inches. It, he's like, the normal happiness level is here. And he like held out, his, held out his hand. And then six inches lower, and he held out his other, and he's like, this is where you are. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh. So he put me on antidepressants, but it turns out that I'm bipolar. The one of, you know, a list of things that I have, and, and that can be, 
really detrimental to you, you know, taking antidepressants if you're bipolar. So right. I got work. Okay. And that, that's when I ended up ODing. But, um, yeah, you know, I wasn't misdiagnosed for a while. I think it's very easy, especially with today and how they just want to give you pills immediately. And get, yeah, get you out of their hair. But, like, what... What is like? I mean, when you're trying to diagnose something like bipolar, because I've had writers on this show before that have, uh, you know, struggled with that and and have been misdiagnosed uh, and mismedicated and everything. Like, is it trial and error? Like, I mean, obviously there are some outward symptoms or things that they can probably like a, a through line that they can probably trace. But like, how exactly do they they zero in on it? Uh, to decide that you're bipolar. Yeah, I mean, how did they find out? Like, what what is the list of things? Like, what are the list of symptoms where they're like, okay, this is what you are, and then they give you medication and it works? Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, the first time I was told I was bipolar was the second time I was in the psych ward, and I filled out like a questionnaire. <laughs> it's like a, an SAT for how crazy you are, <laughs> you know. And um, you see, if I if I scored my SATs, like I scored on the crazy level, I would have gone to like Harvard. But, um, you know, so they told me I was bipolar, I was a psych ward, and they started me on a mood stabilizer, and that was what worked. But then, you know, I've had a therapist tell me that I wasn't um, bipolar, that I had this thing right below it, which I can't remember the name because it's long. But, um, you know, it's the highs and lows, right? It's, 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 the TV thing, the thing that they show in movies, except mine were never as extreme and the highs are amazing, but they never come enough, you know? Right. So, but mine were generally always on the low end and they were never too extreme. You know, you hear stories about going to people like going to Vegas and dropping $30,000 in a weekend, you know, spending all their money, you know, having sex with 20 people in a weekend, you know, that those, those highs that they right. get, right. The things like that happen where I was constantly at the, at the lower state. Um, so that wasn't fun. Yeah. See, I was like, a, there's a part of me that's sort of jealous of people with like ADHD and bipolar high. So like where I'm like, just like from a creative standpoint, I'm like, God, you know, like you really can get a lot of work done, you know, or, or sometimes you can, I guess, you know, but I'm like in a kind well, of a, a by comparison, I'm in like kind of a constant state of like lethargy. <laughs> That, that's the that's the thing. That's the, but there's there's the romanticizing of the um, tortured artist, right? You know, and and uh, I played along with that, and you know, twenty twenty one, twenty two, uh, when it is a romantic idea, but it's really not, you know. And I'd much rather be where you are, where it's kind of like. A, I want to be. You, you've never dealt. You never dealt with mental health issues. No, I mean, I think like depression. I, you know, I mean, I've been depressed just like anybody, but I've never had like. The, I've never not been able to get out of bed, and you know, I'm pretty. I'm really good about exercising, which I think is how I manage it. Like, I don't understand how people cannot exercise and like take care of themselves because if I didn't, I would feel really bad. Um, so that's like how it manifests for me. And like, I know other people, I know a lot of writers who are like that, where they're like, you know, like religious runners or whatever it is. But like my neurochemistry, my biochemistry is totally related to like physical activity. And I, you know, I have to move otherwise, like I feel shitty. Um, yeah, that, that makes sense. I've, I, I've been, you know, bad with that recently, but, um, I also have, <laughs> The worst thing is, the worst than bipolar, probably not, 
yeah, I guess. But um, I have OCD, like extreme OCD. Jesus. So, uh, like, how does it manifest? Okay. Well, it's it's interesting. It's um, it's manifested in in three different ways over, let's say, the last six seven years. First, it was uh, I, I grew up extremely overweight. Like, I was just a fat kid, you know, <laughs> through middle school and high school. And I dropped about 100 pounds in college. Jesus. Okay, so what were you weighing in, in high school, like, at your peak? Uh, 270. Holy shit. Yeah. How tall yeah. are you? And, um, about 6'2". All right. Okay, well, that's a big, I mean, that's a big frame. I was, If you were, like, five foot seven, I was going to be, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, no. Okay. But, um... It was still, I was still pretty big. You know, I was like a pear. Uh, but, um, so I started exercising and, and watching what I eat. You know, I saw a nutritionist once and I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't do any of those like fat diets because I don't think they work because the minute you go off them, you're just going to blow them back up. It has to be a complete lifestyle change, right? Right. So, um, when uh when I, I this happened though right around the time when the bipolar and the borderline personality and the OCD started taking taking effect, so I became obsessed with exercising. And you know, um, so after I lost, after I got down to say one seventy five, I just kept going. So the obsessiveness, because the lack of control that I was getting to, was I, I could control what I ate. So I became anorexic for a while. Holy shit. And, um, yeah, I got under, and I'm 6'2", and, and the lowest I weighed was 145. Holy shit. That's like, that's like you know, at, at 6'2", 145, you're like concentration camp skinny. Like, that's... Actually, that's what my dad said. My dad said, you you um, you look like a Holocaust victim. And uh, <laughs> my, my one girlfriend, during one of it, we were in bed. And, and, you know, we were both naked, and we were we were about to fuck. And, and she goes, you look emaciated. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, thanks. She's like, don't worry. I still want to have sex with you. And I was like, all right, cool. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, so I saw, and then I started seeing this, this therapist that, that dealt with eating disorders. And, and I don't, luckily, you know, I still grapple with it, but not to that extent. I put on weight. I'm about at 185 now, 180, which is probably where I should be. Yeah. Um, so, but, uh, she, you know, fixed that, but I don't think I was, I had a true eating disorder because it was easy for me to change the obsessiveness to something else. So, so the compulsiveness was just with eating at that time. And then it went to my teeth. It went to what? So, my teeth. I became convinced that my teeth were going to fall out, uh, that my gums were, you know, going away. And I would stare at my teeth for hours. It became this thing. Anytime there was a mirror, I had to look at my teeth. And um, it's just, it's bizarre. You know, why would you think about that? And then I would focus on teeth on TV, everyone's, or, or everyone I met. Everyone I met, you know, not judging, just just looking. Um, I'm getting very self. I'm getting very self conscious about my teeth right now. Just like thinking about you. Them. You should. I'm judging them right now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, through through the phone, and um, that that was weird. So that happened for a while, and then it moved on to cleanliness. And so, uh, you know, it, it seemed it's almost like 
the even with the eating disorder, I was still able to function in society, you know, well. But um, and and with the teeth thing, if there weren't mirrors, but I was I just like I guess was I'm pushing myself more and more away, you know, from everyone else, which is probably why I write so much. Um, I I couldn't touch anything, right? You know, so it got to this thing like like if you just watched me in a day, you'd be exhausted by my plan for everything. Like I'm always ten steps ahead figuring out what I have to touch and when I, like, so the, the few amount of times I can wash my hands, you know, the fewest, like how many, what to do in this order, this order, this order, this order, and I have it down to a science, you know? Um, it's actually kind of frightening. But, you know, my knuckles will crack and bleed. Um, my skin raw a lot of the time. Um, so still, then it still, moves like this is still a thing with you? Like the cleanliness? Oh, uh, yeah, very, very much so. Um, yeah, it's it's really bad. Do you, uh, do you shake people's hands? Like, is that a thing where you don't want to shake people's hands? Like, is that a, a problem? Uh, I, I'm not a fan of it. I will. I've gotten a little better with it. Um, but uh, I carry wet wipes with me, <laughs> individually ones, in my back pocket. I don't mean to. So then I'll, no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> I'll wet wipe. You know, I'm not I'm not embarrassed of it, though. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't embrace it. I write about it quite a bit, but I'm not embarrassed of it. So I'll, like... You know, I, I, I met a girlfriend once because I was at a coffee shop and she worked there. I've dated like a line of baristas because that's <laughs> where I spent a lot of time. Um, and uh, free coffee is awesome, uh, especially when you don't have money. So I would take out like this big tube of sanitizer, like Corel, and then this other big tube of moisturizer. And they would just sit on my table while I was writing, and and people would ask me questions about it. But um, yeah, yeah, it's 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 a mess. At, at one point, I actually had to drop out of school. Uh, at one program, I went to Virginia Tech from 2008 to 2009 for my MFA, and I dropped out because I was going to have to teach, and I was scared to touch my students' papers. Jesus. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I applied for disability. Wow. Okay. So let's got, just, let me just try to it. let me just try to sum this up because you've mentioned like a lot of different things. You you you've dealt with depression. You made one suicide attempt uh, trying to overdose on clonopin. Yeah. You have you struggled with OCD, uh, and then you also mentioned borderline personality disorder earlier. Is that also a, a thing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Can you? Okay. So I don't I don't want to cut off the the OCD because I think it's interesting that you actually applied for disability. Um. You know, I, I want to hear the rest of that story, but then I definitely want to address borderline because I think that's something that not a lot of people, including me, fully understand. So what happened as a result? I mean, you, you, you dropped out, you quit the teaching job? Uh, yeah, well, what happened was um, the way Virginia Tech works is the first semester you get a quote-unquote fellowship, but it's all a big lie because they make you take 18 credits of graduate hours, you know, which a full load is nine credits, um, your first semester, which is, and it's all like pedagogy and all that. So, and then you teach your second semester. Um, but so you would teach, I would have been teaching in January and I tried to quit in December cause I couldn't teach. I didn't want to teach. And, um, they ended up finding me something else to do. I worked in the writing center. I was tutoring 
and I didn't really have to touch anything doing that, so that was fine. But they could only do that for the one semester. So then the following year, I would have had to touch things uh, and teach. So I, I left. And then I almost went back. They, they took me back. I moved there. And then I, I quit again like a few weeks before school started. Like, did you, were, were you telling them, like, listen, I have this OCD thing. I don't want to touch papers. Or was it all a secret? Um, I told them, I told them, you know, the first time I, I didn't teach, it wasn't that bad. I was actually strangely scared of teaching, but, um, it was, I mean, you know, the OCD was still a huge issue, a huge issue. Um, uh, especially with the cold up there, uh, my hands were a mess, but, um, the second time, yeah, I told him I couldn't do it. I just, I, I told her I couldn't, I couldn't, I wasn't leaving the apartment, you know? Holy cow. Okay. Um, and wh- so what do you do with your hands when you're out in public? Are they constantly in your pockets? Like, how are you protecting yourself? Uh, it, it's, it's something you have to work on, you know, it, and it's, no, no, the, I'm not protecting, but, um, I'll be conscious of not touching my face. You know, I could, I could probably list. You could talk to me in the late afternoon. And even if I were up early this morning, I could probably tell you everything I touched. Um, so I know what I've touched. Uh, I, um, am conscious of touching my face. Uh, they're all, like I said, they're always wet wipes, um, always washing my hands. And then there's the whole incident public restrooms that, you know, I could go on forever about. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I'm, picturing, I'm picturing like elbows and feet, like the shoe flush and like, you know, is that what you're doing? I used to do the shoe flush, and now I have a thing about the shoe flush because I wear my shoes home. <laughs> so, so then it's going to touch things inside my home, you know, or, or the floor of my car, you know, or anything that has to work. Fuck, they're on my shoes. They're on my feet. Right. So um, that was that became a thing. So, but, um, you know, now that every, a lot of people are, are switching to the automatic hand dryers, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a problem. Wait, so because, but the automatic hand dryers are good, right? Or do you find those disgusting? Oh no, no, I find them, I find them disgusting. You know, I find them nice for the environment. But think about it. So you're going into a normal restroom. You have to open the door, right? And then you, and then you piss or whatever. And then you have to wash your hands. And you're touching the knobs to turn on the hot or cold water. And and a lot of times, if you're in a bar, there is no hot water. So why do they even have the hot water knob? Um, I think they're just fucking with you, but, um, so you're touching that, which everyone else touched after they touched themselves, right? So they touch the knob and they're dirty, then they wash their hands and then you touch the dirty knob to turn off the water. And then you take the paper towels, you, you dry your hands, right? And then you open the door to leave. But how you, I mean, you, you, you're a guy, you've been out, you've seen how many guys, don't wash their hands after you go to the bathroom, and they just open that door and leave. So you're basically just dirtying your hands right around again. So the paper towels, what you do, you wash your hands, take the paper towels, you dry your hands, you turn the faucet off with the paper towels, and then you open the door with the paper towels. Okay, okay. And got- try to, like, bank shot the um, paper into the skin. Okay, I got to stop you because I do this. Like, I don't think I have OCD, but, like, I, I hear you. Like, there's some just basic logic in what you're saying. And, like, I don't want to, like, wash my hands and then touch 
the doorknob of a filthy like bar bathroom. So like, I like it. Right, when, right. Well, even a restaurant, even a nice restaurant. Yeah. What do you do? So, so what would you do if you went in there? I mean, it's like if, and, it, if it doesn't work out, if it doesn't work out and I have to touch the knob, I mean, I'll touch the knob, but on the way out, I'll try to use the paper towel. Like if the bathroom is small enough and there's like an, an adjacent trash can, like I will do that. I'll open the door with the paper towel. <laughs> um, but it's What not, if there are paper towels and there's only a hand dryer? Oh, I don't mind the hand dryers at all. I don't understand what's wrong with the with the with just air. Like, what's the? Is it just dirty air? Well, no, it's 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 not having the paper towels to open the door or turn off the knob. Oh yeah, but then and you then see that if you use your sleeve, then your sleeve comes with you, and then you have dirty clothes. <laughs> yes, and that's on you the whole time. <laughs> and I've I've left places because the bathroom doesn't work out. Oh, I will I will cautiously go to restaurants. Or wherever, where I know the um, bathrooms will be okay. Or if not, I will like say um, a coffee shop that I know doesn't have because I write a lot of coffee shops. So that's why I keep bringing it up. Um, if I if I know they're not going to, I will take like a stack of napkins, paper um, from the like you know the dispenser out where you get the drinks put in my pocket and bring them to the bathroom. Jesus. So there is a lot of planning that goes into this. Oh, it's exhausting. I'm tired all the time. Okay. So, okay. How do we, how do we treat this? I mean, are you, are you getting treatment for this? Uh, you know, at this moment, I'm not, uh, you know, Mississippi <laughs> is, uh, a little behind on their, on their quality of, of therapy. Um, yeah, wait, where, where are you? Where, where are, I don't even know where you are. You're in Mississippi. I'm in Oxford, Mississippi. Okay. And and I'm also on school insurance, uh, which is kind of a joke, you know. So um, it's hard to afford. And uh, prob plan. Um, basically, the the good therapist wouldn't be on my plan. Um, the plan's so bad that you're supposed to tell Aetna, like if you're going to the hospital before you get there, <laughs> and. And, and I find this really baffling. And um, so, so like, what do I have to do? What if I'm unconscious? You know, what if I got to be in a car wreck or, or something and, and I can't tell the paramedics that I'm with Edna or call on my way there? Do I need to, like, tattoo it on my body or, you know, like, wear a dog tag that says something about that? Or, you know, it doesn't make any sense. But um, at orientation, when I first last year, because this will be my second year, in the MFA program that we'll miss. Uh, they were going over the insurance, and, you know, it's just ridiculous, and I raised my hand because I had a bunch of problems with it, and I was like, so it's just, it's just, uh, it's cheaper just to die, right? <laughs> it's cheaper to be dead and, and then be on this insurance, and the woman had to say yes. It's like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's just so gross. I could do a whole show on the, yeah. the grossness of, of health insurance, especially when you're dealing with, like, multiple... Uh, mental illnesses that like need treatment you know it's like just it seems criminal to me and just obscene that there's not a way for you to get access to quality care at like a, i don't know really drives me crazy oh, i mean god it's a mess and and you know like when you know reagan opened up all the all the mental hospitals you know and and basically so many homeless are mentally handicapped in so many ways and skid row you know they these people don't get treatment and and i consider myself a very lucky person 
because I have had treatment and I can and I have medication, you know? Right. But, uh, God, the amount of people who don't and, and the forgotten, just the not cared about, you know, it's easy just to look away and, and just say, oh, they're just eccentric or crazy or, which I am both. I am eccentric as well, I guess. I mean, I'm a writer, um, which probably doesn't help, but I'm probably a writer partially because of these things. Sure. Well, yeah, I think, I mean, there's like some, I got, it seems to me that there's some component of compulsivity or mental illness somehow tied into any writer's existence. Like the writerly impulse has, is built at least partially on some sort of affliction. (laughs) It seems like. You're, you're, you're pretty normal, um, on, on writer's terms. So, so what is your, you know, get you to sit at a computer for eight hours? You know, time, maybe right. the maybe the fact that I'm normal is like part of the problem. You know, maybe I need to be like less normal. Um, I don't know. I think like I think I'm more depressive than maybe I sound on the show or maybe people think. I think I manage it well. I work really hard at it. Like I meditate and exercise and like eat well and you know, like I, I'm I'm very proactive about taking care of myself. Like I don't want to feel bad. Do you know what I'm saying? No, see, see, that's that's great, and I don't think you have to feel bad to be a good writer. Right. And, um, I mean, honestly, I write best when I'm happier, you know? Um, You know, just like I can't write drunk or write well. I don't really like to write on anything. I say that, yet I take my Adderall and Xanax together to see which one wins. You know, I'll take (laughs) them at the same time. (laughs) And um, it's just like a race, and I wonder which which one wins. The Adderall usually wins. The Adderall one today because I'm going a hundred miles an hour right now. But, um, and I even took an extra Xanax for your show. So, Oh, you did. Okay. So like, this is the thing, like, uh, I'm very fascinated, but also like leery of Adderall and Xanax and like the pervasiveness of them. Like, I feel like it's generational. Like I'm older than I think the generation of, of people who, for whom this stuff is like, you know, recreationally available. Like that wasn't the case when I was in college. And, you know, I'm, I've never been uh, medicated, you know, prescribed medication for mental illness or anything like that. But I, I can't help but think to myself when I look at the chemical components of Adderall, for example, that it's basically, I mean, isn't it just like biker speed from like the 60s? It's the same exact chemical compound. And yeah, I mean, my, you know, I get the generics and, and my bottle says amphetamine. Yeah. That's <laughs> so, I mean, absolutely. Right. So, um, but you know, I, I, I get it. I mean, I'm prescribed all this. And so do you, you know, I mean, do you I have mean, any reservations? Like I'm just basically taking, amph- I mean, do you take amphetamines every day? Yeah. Yeah. Um, every day. And that's the one thing that I've actually become addicted to, which I didn't, I didn't take it. I don't think I, I don't have ADHD or anything like that. Um, well, that's and, the and, thing. And is I, that that's I the have, thing? It, people, people are like, "Oh yeah, I'm narcoleptic," or "Oh yeah, I have ADD," and it's like, "No, you don't." Like, "No, you don't." <laughs> you just well, you either you want to be skinny or you want to be like hyper awake or both. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's a lot of, or you just want to like be able to drink with like impunity. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> I, I, there is a lot of lying involved to get these things. I know that, but well, what would happen? You know, for me is I, it was after I started taking my mood stabilizers and stuff, I had a harder time concentrating. And I think it was a side effect of that, and that's when I started. And, and, and see, the thing about pills 
they give you one, and then and then they they have to you have side effects, then they have to give you another one to quell to quell those side effects, and then they have to give you another one to deal with those side effects, and then oh, there's something else going on, so here's another one, you know, and it's just it, and it, and then really these doctors are just playing this game of cocktail, and they're just trying to find this perfect cocktail for you. But the problem is that I don't really know if there is a perfect cocktail. There are, I mean, you know, I say that and I will say that I'm sure my medication has saved my life and thousands and thousands and thousands of other people will say that as well. But um, nothing's perfect. Well, and okay, see, this is the thing. This is where it gets delicate or like it's, it gets murky for me is that like when it comes to your bipolar, um, what little I know about that is that without the proper medication – you're in big trouble and that it's definitely a lifesaver. Like there, it it needs to be said that like for some uh, mental afflictions or mental illnesses, um, medication is critical, right? Yeah. Okay. But with the other stuff and, and like, I guess like with like really pronounced cases of attention deficit disorder, um, which I don't fully, I mean, I, I, I get that it's a thing. Some people have it. I think it's like really, that feels really great to me, you know? Um, but I'm not an expert. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have kids. I don't really, I don't know any kids, you know, but it seems like it's, you know, happens at a younger and younger age now with the, the Ritalin and, and whatever. And, um, I do wonder if, if there are, you know, more holistic ways to, deal with that well okay see this is the thing like my daughter is three and um thankfully you know knock on wood like she's not like bouncing off the walls it doesn't seem there's some times where it's hard to get her attention but she's three years old and what i always think when i hear of like these like uh, you know young children being prescribed these heavy medications is like first of all what are you feeding them like what are they eating like i really do believe that that matters uh, I, i'm no expert but it just seems logical to me like a lot of these kids are just drinking like, you know, really sugary sodas and eating like processed foods. And, you know, you're going to be all cracked out if that's the case. You just are. And, you know, kids and sugar. I mean, my daughter has like an orange juice and it's like she just did a line of cocaine. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, uh, I mean, honestly, any parent will tell you this. Like you get a kid sugared up and they're bouncing off the walls. So like you, 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 you know, it's processed sugar and it's processed foods and it's just crap. Like they're not going to be right psychologically either, you know, physically, psychologically. And so I don't know, I have great reservations and would be enormously cautious about medicating my child for something like that at a really young age, unless like the symptoms were just like out of control and I was, you know, at a complete loss. That's right. And I'm sure there, and I'm sure there are, you know, cases of that and, yeah. and plenty of them where it is out of control but I do think that this is the ultimate pill culture that we're in right now and everything is just fixed with a pill right and um, I do wish and, and you know maybe if I tried hard enough and with the right therapy I could do it all holistically you know with uh, meditation yoga uh, walking you know and I stopped running because of my um, anorexia at the time it's funny I was I was running probably five miles a day, eating maybe twelve hundred calories, um, cool. and uh, you know, and but I was I was smoking a pack a day, <laughs> so I'd, I'd run and I'd have some cigarettes on the treadmill, you know, or else if I was running outside, 
I would take smoke breaks while I was running. <laughs> and I was like, see, that's me. I'm, I'm, I'm both extremes. Right. You know? Yeah. So uh, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it fully. If I'm going to smoke, it's going to be a pack a day. Right. Yeah. If I'm going to run, it's going to be five miles. So um, I actually had to slow those things down. Um, so now I just walk. Walking's, walking's good. Walking's good. And like, you know, you talked earlier, or you mentioned just a few seconds ago about how like everything in our, we live in a society where like everything tends to be fixed with a pill and there's that, that's very pervasive. You know, it's like, oh, you don't feel well or you want, you know, or you, you can't stop eating or whatever it is. It's like, just take this and call me in the morning kind of thing. And like, I've been thinking a lot about this and I think that, and I don't think it's new. I think that people... Uh, don't want to confront their suffering and they want to numb themselves or they want to move away from their suffering. And the irony of that, as I understand it, is that if you, if you don't lean into your suffering and actually take a look at it, it's going to get worse. And if you try to numb it with pills or pretend it isn't there or, you know, and everybody does this to some extent, distract yourself with the internet. Like I'm raising my hand right now as I say that. So I don't mean to sound holier than thou when I say this, it's something I work on with myself, but it's like the, the, I, you know, the, I think it's a counterintuitive for most of us is that the only way to actually lessen suffering is to lean into it and to confront it and to look at it and to try to understand it and where it came from and taking pills to try to alleviate suffering is just putting like a, you know, it's just trying to, it's covering them up temporarily, but it's not really addressing the root cause. It's like symptom and not cause. Does that make sense? Like, have I been articulate? <laughs> uh, no, yeah, yeah. No, no, I get that. I mean, again, it's a case-by-case basis. You know, if if I didn't take my Lamictal, I'd be... Bad, yeah. I'd be a fucking wreck. I don't know where I'd be. Right. Um, but, you know... And and yes, I, I do think I do think I I need my my Xanax probably maybe not as much as I take, but uh, you know because I, I have anxiety disorder as well, um, so we're just gonna you know keep putting things on it. But you know like when you're sitting in the corner of a mall shaking and crying, you know having a panic attack, you know which which really feels like you're gonna die. Yeah. Um, you don't know what's happening to you, and even if it's only 15 minutes long. It's scary and it's intense. And, and see, this is the thing that I Wait, that, has that yeah. happened to you? Are you speaking from experience? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Everything I'm 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 saying is speaking from experience because I don't want to talk for anybody else, you know. But um, and I'm very candid with these things. But um, yeah, I, where was I going? Um, well, just about like. But I do self medicate. I do self medicate. Right. You know, I, I, I take my I take my Adderall with my Xanax because I enjoy the feeling. Um, I drink a shit ton of coffee. You know, I, I self medicate. Do you drink? Do you drink alcohol? alcohol? Uh, I do. I'm not a big drinker. I, I don't. I honestly couldn't tell you the last time I had had a drink. Um, might have been a couple weeks. But I, I've never actually. Um, I don't think I, I'm prone to alcoholism at all, but um, I, I've, I've always been too lazy for it. <laughs> I, I feel like it takes work. <laughs> and if I could just pop something, you know, and get those effects instead of having to drink and work on it, work to get to it, um, that's probably my laziness coming into play as well, you know? <laughs> 
But uh, I would relate to all of this. You know, I didn't really start drinking until I was 23. Um, you know, but before that, I had been taking, you know, IOD when I was 20. So, so you see, like, like I'm kind of backwards in, in that regard. So I, I, I've been playing with pills, you know, God, you know, give me some Vicodin, Percocet. So, well, see, but that's um, the, that's the thing. Like, that's the age that we live in right now, and it's developed over the last decade, and it's it's a distinct shift. Like, I noticed it maybe towards the tail end of my um, wayward youth, but like the last decade, and then the, currently, you know, like it's it, it's about pharmaceuticals as opposed to like illegal street drugs. Like, we're talking about drugs that are prescribed by medical doctors being used recreationally. Um, in mass, like I think is like the, uh, like if you, if, if there's a defining trend in a, in an era, like when it comes to drugs, like, you know, eighties was what, like cocaine and maybe crack or whatever. And like, I feel, and like the seventies was like what quaaludes and who knows, you know, but like, I feel like pharmaceuticals for the past decade have become like very prominent from a recreational standpoint in ways that they weren't previously. Oh, I think it's absolutely the major thing. And um, I feel like if you read, you know, young writers, that's what they write about. Yeah. I mean, uh, when they when they write about drugs. Um, absolutely. Absolutely. Because it's so easy to get. Well, that's it. And then there's, it, al- there's also like a level of sophistication about like, uh, you know, intake. Like a lot of people are really sophisticated because they, I guess they've gotten some directions from their doctors or they're Googling this stuff. But like. You know, I don't know. Just, I guess people were the same way when it came to other drugs when I was in college or whatever. But there's something there's something different about it when you're talking about like pharmaceuticals and how many milligrams and you know, like I don't know. Right. I just, well, you can you can function on them too. That's that's another thing is you can you know, uh, like the, the show House, you know, with his with his Vicodin addiction, you know, how he was just. Taking back in every few, I mean, he had that pain in his leg. I don't know if you watched House. It's just what yeah, I thought uh-huh. of. But um, the first few seasons were good, then it kind of, you know, as with most things. Uh, but um, yeah, you know, I, I, I know how much of something I can take to, to get me through, but where it won't really affect anything, you know? So you can do that. Well, and that's so it, that, Go ahead. No, 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 you go on. Well, I was just going to say, like, uh, that's one of the, that's one of, I mean, if, if there's a positive side to, uh, you know, the recreational use of pharmaceuticals is that it is a controlled dose. Um, whereas if you're getting, you know, uh, an opiate or uh, hallucinogen, like off the street, it's hard to know, like, how much to take, which is always, like, part of the, part of the risk. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> You get a bag. You, yeah, get, you get a bag of heroin, or you get a bag of mushrooms, or something, or cocaine off the street. Like you don't know how good it is, or how strong or potent it is, and that's why a lot of these like uh, accidental overdoses happen. You know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I've I've never done hard drugs. You know, so I, I wouldn't even know how to start. You know, I would, and and knowing me, I'd actually do research. But um, uh, you know, I, it, it's what other drug can I get for ten dollars a month? Right. With my copay. <laughs> right, right. So, so, you know, I do need it for my anxiety. I, I but, um, but maybe I don't. You know, maybe I could do something else. Maybe I could do something healthy for my body to fix it. 
play, let's be honest, I'm not going to. At least not right now. <laughs> and um, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that people should just go go abuse drugs. But um, yeah, you know. But but here's the thing: if I was never prescribed to begin with, I don't know if I ever would have tried it. Like my Vicodin, my Vicodin addiction came because of an accident. I'm not, I don't have a Vicodin addiction anymore. I weaned myself off it a while ago. But um, you know, nothing really beats that high for me. Uh, I still, you know, think about it sometimes. It's, it's that good. Opiates, you know, opiates are dangerous, man. You know, I have, I've, uh, yeah. I've lost friends to opiates. You know, so it's, it's just like oh. it's, it's just a slippery slope, and it's like really, there's danger in um, accidental overdoses. I know that firsthand. So you got to be really careful, just because like the addictive quality. You know, like, and I guess like you could say the same thing about amphetamines and. You know, it's just, Sorry to hear that. yeah, no, I mean, it's like, that's the thing about it is that it's tricky because I don't want to be like a scold. I had my fun too. And like, you know, I know that like, at least in my experience, like a majority of these, uh, experimentations or a majority of these experiences are, are relatively benign, or at least they don't end tragically, but I think cumulatively. And then also on the side of, uh, you know, if you have an addictive tendency, then that's something to be aware of. <laughs> uh, oh, for sure. No, I mean, I haven't, I haven't done a, you know, an opiate in, in a long time, but, um, it, it's just like, I think what happened was, you know, I got, I got to experience those or, you know, and, and then I started drinking after that and it just didn't add up. It didn't measure up. Yeah. Well, and like, know, okay. it's like, well, this is disappointing. You mean, like, you mean the alcohol wasn't as good? Yeah, yeah, not at all. Yeah, not, right. not even, not even a tenth, you know. But <laughs> but you know, in a lot of this is in, in my doctor's fault. I had a, I had um, uh, a psychiatrist at Florida State, not the same psychiatrist who gave me the Zoloft or whatever that sent me spiraling. Um, I don't know which one it was. There, there's so many. Who knows which one? But and then you know, I couldn't, I couldn't come. So it's just a lose lose. I'm going even crazier, and and, I, and I'm fucking, and it's just like nothing's happening. But, so can we quit now? Let's but, it, but you could last a long time, right? I mean, that's almost like she must have been impressed. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 I yeah, yeah. You could have just but, you could have just played it off, like you know, like the, this is just you know, it's not intense enough for me, or and, and fake it, <laughs> not fake. But you know, you know, but then you you don't finish, and then they they feel terrible, and, and then you feel terrible, they feel terrible, and you feel terrible, they just can't finish, and then <laughs> you know, then they be awkward. But um, okay, so I want a couple things because I want to get to relationships because I know that that's like an, a strong element of your book, but uh, and it's also a, a like a real point of curiosity for me based on everything that we've talked about so far, but. Um, before we get there, like a couple things. First of all, with regard to like all the different drugs you're taking and have taken for the past several years, like we've obviously been over the necessity of the medication that you take for bipolar and for anxiety and uh, all that stuff. But do you ever think about it and say, my God, like I'm putting a lot of these chemicals into my body. I'm putting like a cocktail of different pharmaceuticals into my body. I feel decently. Um, but do you ever wonder like, what's the cumulative impact of this, of this, of this mixture? Or like, how have I, yeah. like, how have I changed my neurochemistry or my wiring and is it a permanent change? Like, do you ever ask yourself that question? You know, I mean, yeah, you, there's, there's, and then there's two ways that you have, there's two ways to look at it. There, there's that fear. I took, I took five pills this morning. Yeah. 
I took I took my Lamictal, I took my Wellbutrin, I took my Adderall, and then I took I took two Xanax. You know, which which I'm allowed to. I'm allowed to take two a day. I just happen to take two early on. You know, <laughs> instead of one in the morning, one you know, one in the afternoon. Sure. You know, but I won't take another one today. Right. So I'm not I'm not abusing my meds. I might not be taking them ex- properly all the time. Let's say, but um. You know, actually taking the Xanax the Adderall is, is pretty good because it kind of takes that little edge off okay. of the, you know, the speedy high. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, I'm 28 years old, and I took, you know, I take four or five pills a day. And that's that just doesn't seem right, you know? Uh, I don't have high blood pressure, you know? I'm, I'm, I'm not unhealthy. You know, I'm I'm not the healthiest I could be. So, but you know, I shouldn't be taking you know four or five pulls a day until I'm seventy. Um, you know, right. So there there's that that I've thought about. You know, but on the other hand, it's and and this is the one thing that if if people are listening and or younger people, it's like don't be ashamed if you have to take an antidepressant or a mood stabilizer and. What I was told, which made a lot of sense, is, you know, some people have high blood pressure, so they have to take this pill every day. Or some people, you know, diabetes, they have to get shot. You know, there's these things that just people have to take that isn't, you know, embarrassing to them, right? Or necessarily, I don't don't know, I I don't have to do any of those things, but they told me that. It's like, you're just going to have to take this pill. For the rest of your life, it's like having high blood pressure in your brain. And you're talking about which, um, which pill are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about like the Lamictal and the Wellbutrin, you know, and, and it probably won't be that exact pill forever because they wear off in maybe five or ten years, and you have to try again. You know, your body becomes adapt to it. But um, you know, and and that that makes a lot of sense. It's just like you know, this is just what you need to get by. I got you. And then, and borderline personality disorder. Like, what is that, and like, how does that manifest in your life? Uh, it's a difficult thing to comprehend, and it's actually um, one of the hardest things to treat because there isn't medication for it. Uh, and and it's just you know what I realize is it's basically cognitive therapy is how you how you get through it. And same same with OCD. Um, the only meds that help with OCD are generally antidepressants and I am frightened to death of taking another antidepressant because of what happened in the past. Sure. So I don't. So I don't. So, you know, when I do therapy, um, I do cognitive therapy. It's like, okay, so this week you use your towel two times before getting a new one, you know? And then, and then I do that and then I come back the next week for therapy and they're like, you're not dead yet. Look at that. Let's move on to something else. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. It's, it's like, like, you know, that, that's basically what it is. But um, borderline, I I don't, I'm not proud of it. And, it. and it still happens, but it was even worse when I was younger and it first started. I was pushing away the people that I was just the closest to, the people that I loved the most, and I was terrible to them, and I didn't know why. And, you know, I think that that is a lot of what borderline is and, and it's it's something that I don't even really comprehend too well 
Yeah. Um, so that's yeah, what it is. I mean, that's like one of the symptoms is that you push away people really close to you. Like, like how, what do you mean? Like, you know, like you're, you're just like being really vicious to them or were you just shutting uh, down? Yeah. Yeah. You know, shutting, shutting down the big one. Um, I've, I've ruined countless relationships because of it, you know, because of me and the way I have, uh, pushed people away or treated people in the past. And I don't know why I'm doing it sometimes, you know, but, but I'm aware that I'm doing it. I'm not, I'm not blaming anything on, on my, you know, mental illness, you know, I'm not saying, oh, I get a free pass because I have this, not at all. Um, I take full responsibility, but yeah, you know, um, I, I, I can, you know, look back and, and think, oh, look what I did to these people. It's awful. Um, I'm a shitty person. And, you know, so, it's a it's a very it's a very strange thing, um, and and it's just they don't they don't there isn't any medication for it. Um, I just think it takes a lot of intensive therapy. And like, what but, what are, what are other symptoms like what, other than like pushing people away? You know, like I've heard that like borderline people. Uh, for example, are extremely good when they meet somebody at zeroing in on that person's weakness. <laughs> uh, am I crazy? I mean, am I, or am I misremembering? I, I want to say that they're like really astute at that. Like they can zero in on like your soft point with like unusual speed and accuracy. Can you do that? Um, soft. I I connect with people very quickly. Okay. I don't know if that has something to do with that. Like, I just realized how to, but I'd like to feel like that's a genuine thing. But, um, you know, for me, it's just, it's just been the way I've destroyed things. Uh, that's, that's the simplest. And, you know, I haven't honestly thought about it too much. Um, like when I did the questionnaire, my really good SAT score, um, that was, that was the second thing after bipolar. And, and I just, I did, I like, almost forgot about it, you know, over time because nobody really mentioned it or mentioned medication for it. And yeah, um, you're, you're like, as long as there's, I mean, if there's not a medication for this and fuck it. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, you know, I mean, I was, I was such a mess at the time. I, I had, uh, you know, I guess I was going through a high and then crashed. I was up all the night before. Um, and then I came home and I took a shower and I couldn't get out of the shower and I was sitting on like the shower floor for about 45 minutes to an hour before I called my friend. It's just like, you need to take me to the hospital. Um, because you know, I felt it going on and, and I didn't, I didn't want to do that to my mother again, you know, because I saw her face okay. in the hospital room last time, you know? And then, and then when they had to put the straight jacket on me and, and wheel me from the one wing <laughs> to the other wing of the, of Memorial Regional, you know, to the psych unit because I don't want to, were they going to run? I don't know. But, um, yeah. Uh, your parents must have, must have, uh, now it makes a lot more sense earlier. Like when we just got started, you were saying your, your mom was happy to have you home so she could keep an eye on you. Like, I didn't quite understand what that meant, but like your, your poor folks, they must be happy that you're well. Uh, yeah. Well, you know, and I've, 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 I've had problems, um, you know, in the past, no, I mean, not, not too distant past, too distant past. Um, I don't think they're worried about that. Uh, I haven't been suicidal in, in a long time, but you know, 
don't they worry about the OCD and whatnot, which sometimes almost feels worse because it just feels like a constant prison. You know? Do, and, do, um, do either of them battle with mental illness? Either of your parents or any siblings? Like, is this something that runs uh, in your family? No, but I was adopted. Oh, you were? Okay. So we have we have no idea of the medical... And that's the first thing every doctor says, and then I have to give them a spiel. Um, that I was adopted. So that that's always been something that I've been curious about is, is what is going on with that. And then I've had this... So, but you've never tracked down your biological parents? I haven't, no, no. Um, I love my parents. I'm in an incredible relationship with them. I'm very lucky that I was adopted. Um, and, and I just, I don't feel the need, you know. They're, right. they're my parents. But I, I wonder about this, you know, about my own issues. And I, and I do want children or a child, maybe just one. But I worry that it's incredibly selfish of me to have one because what if some of this was passed down? Yeah, but see, the thing is, man, is that there's shit in every gene pool. Like, if it's not that, it'll be something else. You know? <laughs> like, yeah, I guess so. But, like, like I just, God, God, the thoughts I have every day, you know, the issues. Right. Which everyone has issues, you know, nothing minor, minor, any any worse than anybody else's. But I don't know. Sometimes it just feels so incredibly soft. You know, I'm like, I should just. What about no, what about know. adopting? You could adopt. Oh no, I would I would I would absolutely love to. I'd yeah. absolutely love to. Um especially maybe a slightly older child because you know, I guess at a certain age that they're not gonna get adopted and they're gonna end up having to go through the system. Right. But um you know, I I don't is it worth it? The the real your life completely changed. What, to have a kid? Yeah, what was it like? Uh, it's awesome. You know, like, it's like, uh, I always say it's really hard to talk about because there's nothing new you can say about it. Uh, everything that every friend of yours or every person in a movie or a TV show has ever said is essentially true. And like, broadly speaking, um, it's like, uh, you, like the way that I love my daughter exceeds anything that I've ever felt. That's the best you can say. And I think any parent who's, you know, decently uh, grounded would say the same thing. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, just this morning, you know, you go in there every morning, I go in there to like get her out of her crib or, or wake her up. It's like, I don't know. It's like really exciting and I feel really good. You know, <laughs> like There's something, okay, here's what I always, here's the one unique thing I think I can say about it is that there's like something genuinely narcotic about children. Um, it's like you get a little high from them every time they laugh, like, and it's, it's real. And, and it's not a situation of diminishing returns where like with every subsequent laugh, the high, you know, diminishes, like it's always there. And, um, no one really quite told it to me that way. But like when my daughter's like laughing at a joke of, uh, I've told, um, it's, it's literally like, I just did like some sort of speed or something, you know, like, um, so I don't know. It's, it's, it's really, you know, it's hard to talk about. It's a great thing, but it definitely comes with a lot of sacrifice, but, um, it's a sacrifice easily made for me. And I think if you had good parents who showed you the way, then that's an advantage. Uh, I don't think you necessarily had to have that. You just have to kind of want to do that and have some understanding of the fact that it's going to require of you, 
um, sacrifice. And from a creative standpoint, you know, that's something that writers should consider because it definitely, I think, uh, gets more difficult, you know, time wise, but I don't necessarily think, uh, it should preclude you from, from doing it because plenty of writers pull it off. It just depends on how, you know, how central to your life writing is and how much time you need to spend on it and how selfish you are about that time. And, you know, uh, Oh, that, that, that is not my concern at all about, about having, having children. Um, you work around it. You know, I, I, I listened to the Benjamin Percy uh, podcast you did with him not too long ago because I love his voice. Yeah, right. <laughs> he's, got, he's got the greatest voice ever. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I saw two of his panels at AWP last year. And I was just like, oh, my God. Yeah. He he uh, he is all testosterone and <laughs> probably has a giant cock. <laughs> and I just said Ben Percy has a giant cock on the other people podcast. Um <laughs> I hope he blurbs a book of mine one day and, and references that. Um, all compliments to you, Mr. Percy, um, in all the ways. Uh, but, um, you know, I, I, I have this, I have this fear about being scared to touch my child. Well, and, 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 and that, that's just, that's just such a frightening thing. I, you know, you want to know something, man? I think that I, I understand where it comes from. I would be really surprised if it bothered you once the kid got once the kid arrived. There's and some... you know that that that's, that that is that is, um, you know what I'm what I'm planning. And also, this is down the line, and I'm hoping right that I'll have the right therapy and it'll be under control. But right. um, my cat helps actually quite a bit. Sure, my cat has been helping. Yeah, there's, um, there's but, your, your kid is like an extension of you. I don't know. Like, I, I, I bet you anything. I mean, I could be totally wrong, but I, I'm willing to bet you that, you know, you would just be like, this is fine. If for some reason, this is permissible. <laughs> you know, like, so, um, yeah, and I, I'm going to take my girlfriend. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in love, and there are times when I can't touch her unless she goes and washes her hands. Okay, so let's or, or shower. This was and, my and, and yeah. Well, no, this was my final like line of questioning because everything leading up to this and with regard, I mean, your book is called Monogamy Songs. So, um, all the OCD, all the different battles that you have to fight um, with regard to mental health. Like, how do you conduct? I mean, you're able to have sex. If you, I've always wondered. I've always found this fascinating about people with like a germ thing, uh, like an OCD related germophobia. Uh, is that most of them, like the overwhelming majority of them that I have known, have have been able to have sex, <laughs> which is not the cleanest act all the time, you know. And there's lots, yes. of, there's transference of fluids and there's germs and everything, but like somehow they're like, you know what, I'm going to turn the switch off for this. <laughs> like, how does it? Right, how, right. How, and, how, and I, and I fucking like, I, I fucking love sex, and dirtier the better. So yeah, it's it's a very it's a very strange thing. It's it's a very, but it also has to be in. And this is because I've gotten worse. It has to be in a proper situation, too, where I know I'll be able to go shower afterwards. Or I have to know that the sheets are going to be washed. There, there, but there, there have been times where I haven't had sex because it was like clean sheet day, which is like my favorite day of all time. You know? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> it's, it's just... 
it's just the best. It's the best feeling, clean sweep day. Um, you know, so, okay, so, so we'll fuck on the couch or we'll fuck against the wall or, you know, there, there's always somewhere else to do it, you know, the floor, um, anything, you know, it doesn't have to stop you from doing it, but there are things like that. Um, but I, I will say that there have been women that I haven't stopped with because of it. And these would have been mistakes anyway, you know, well, see, um, it's, it's, then in that case, it's like a safeguard. <laughs> it kind of is. It kind of is. It's like, Yes, I don't have herpes. <laughs> you know, you know, I beat, I, I got, I don't have the clap. You know, it's great. I, you know, I have thank, a, thank God. No, I have a buddy. I know where you need to go because I have a buddy who's like a serious germaphobe, uh, and he's really, he's kind of like you. He's really funny about it. He's open about it, and um, he, for his job, uh, was covering sex stuff for Playboy, um, like back, I think Playboy TV. And so they would send him around the world and he would go to all these different like conventions and he was like a news reporter, you know, and was kind of covering the scene. And he said the best place that he ever went where he was so happy was Japan because everyone is like fanatically clean. Uh, like it's like a cultural thing, you know, where like everyone's clean, everything's wrapped. And like, <laughs> I don't know, maybe maybe he just had a specific experience. But if you're, if you're, ever, looking, if you're ever looking for like an international travel situation that might be... Um, you know, uh, receptive or, um, pleasant for you, you know, maybe Japan is the place. That, that, that sounds, that sounds perfect. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> but, uh, it, it's, it's very difficult on the people I'm close with and I feel terrible about that. It's one thing, you know, and I'm sure you've, fucked up plenty in your life it's one thing when it happens to you but when it affects someone you love right it's it's worse and that that's my hope that's my hope that that i can i can get past that to uh have a for hopefully my parents relationship you know my parents marriage sure. and and to have kids and be able to throw a ball i would i would i would do it i'd be able to throw a ball right now if I could wash my hands right after, you know, if I could shower right after, you know, but it, it's things like that. It's little things like that. I would have to use a wet wipe after buckling my child in our seat. Well, dude, do you use wet wipes all the, f I mean, th there's no end to hand sanitizer and wipes with a small child. So you're sort of, it's sort of a good fit in some ways. <laughs> like It's uh, terrible for your skin though. Is it really? It, um, the amount of time that I do it. Oh yeah. I mean, the, the way my my hands have dried out in the past. How many and, how many how many like squirts of hand sanitizer a day are you using? Well, I cut I cut out the hand sanitizer. This was this was trying to do my cognitive therapy, but then and my girlfriend gets really mad at me about this because I cut out the hand sanitizer and I'll be like, great, I'm not gonna use hand sanitizer anymore. But I just use the wet wipes now instead. Okay, so but in your heyday, how many like squirts of hand sanitizer were you using? Um, four, five, a day, uh, a, a day? where it would drip. No, no, at a time. Okay. But I mean like total in a day, like on an average oh. day, like how many like times were you hand sanitizing? Two, three times an hour at least. Oh my God. Okay. That's a lot. Yeah. No, no. I mean, everything I'm talking about, you could take, you can take it up notches. They could probably do one of the, uh, like an episode documentary on OCD and interview me, like follow me around for a day. Like that, <laughs> that, that would not be out of, 
um, you know, out of the realm of possibility, and, and I don't know how interesting it'd be, but I, I <laughs> do that category. Wow. You know, and now and now it's gotten it's gotten worse because I'll clean, and then I'll worry that the chemicals I'm cleaning with are going to hurt me. So now, so now there's 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 this double it's a double edged sword. There's the dirt, and then there's the cleaning. Oh my god. So, so now it's like, oh my God, I don't want to do either. And I just float in space, you know? Uh, and it's, it's just, it is, it is literally, it is little, it's, it's being caged. I honestly don't know how I write. I don't know how I get anything done, you know? Um, it's, that, that's the one thing. It's writing takes me out of it for a little while. Um, you go and you live in this something else and, and your mind kind of like slows down and it settles and, it's uh, it's the best drug. Yeah. Well, I uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you, and I appreciate your candor and uh, openness in discussing all this. I'm imagining there's going to be some listeners who find it really beneficial, and uh, I congratulate you on the book, and I wish you well in uh, you know, everything. I hope that like you get a handle on this OCD thing, and I hope that uh, you know, if you want to, I hope you wind up having kids and enjoying that because it's uh, it's a good thing. Oh, there's nothing more than I want than normal life. And if anyone wants to talk about it, I'm more than happy to. If they want to look me up, there's there's plenty of us out there, and 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 sometimes we we tend to feel very alone about it. How would they so, get How would they get in touch with you? Do you have a website and everything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can just Google me or my email. I can give you my email, and you can throw it up on the on the podcast site or something if you want it. But um, well, what is it? Just say it right now, and we'll just let people. Uh, it's it's. JaySweet.Gregory at gmail.com, J-E-S-U-I-S dot Gregory at gmail. Okay. Well, listen, man, it was good talking with you, and uh, best of luck with everything. You too. Thank you. All right, folks, there you go. That's it. That's Gregory Sherl. Go get his book. It's called Monogamy Songs. It's available from the good people at Future Tense Books. You can find Gregory online at Gregory Sherl is GregorySherl.com. He's on Facebook. And you can follow him on the Twitter at The Shurls. Thanks once again to Squarespace, today's sponsor. Remember, you guys, if you need a cost-friendly, wonderfully designed, easy-to-use website, this is the place to go. Squarespace is the premier all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy for you to create your own professional website or online portfolio for a free trial and 10% off. Go to squarespace.com. Do this. And when you do it, Use the offer code OTHER8. Once again, that offer code is OTHER8. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget to get the app, the free, official, other people app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. Uh, It's the official app of this podcast. It's the best and most elegant way to listen. New episodes automatically upload to the app. You can download episodes to listen to offline. You can favorite your favorite episodes. And uh, you can also access premium content and the full archives all via the app. So please go get that if you haven't done it already. The app itself is free. Okay, so uh, beards, author photos, signifiers, wisdom, headscarves, pain, I mean, it's good to have a visual sense of yourself. It's good to have a sense of personal style, I think. And and frankly, I wish I was better at it. I envy people who have a kind of effortless sense of uh, personal aesthetic. They know what looks good on them. 
They know what kinds of clothes to wear and how to grow their facial hair. Uh, I am not that kind of person. I need help. I have special needs. And I tend to wear the same kind of outfit every day. Um, I also think it's interesting. There's also a trend in author photos that I didn't address at the top of the show involving uh, author photos that are intentionally made to look as if they're not trying. You know what I'm saying? It's like a candid shot or like, you know, it's intentionally made to look as though the author is not trying to stage an author photo. Please remember that Nietzsche's close friends called him Fritz and that when Gore Vidal called William F. Buckley a, quote, crypto-Nazi on ABC in 1968, Buckley responded by saying, quote, Now listen, you queer, stop calling me a crypto-Nazi or I'll sock you in your goddamn face, end quote. That's all for now. Thanks for listening, you guys. Thanks to Gregory Sherl. Thanks to Future Tense Books. Uh, thanks to Gore Vidal, RIP. I'll be back again in a few days with an, uh, another author or writerly type person uh, just for you. All right? And uh, for the record, I do have a little stubble right now on my face. I don't shave regularly. Maybe once, twice a week. Uh, I'm sort of always threatening beard. But I never quite go there. What does that mean? <laughs>